if you kind of follow the the journey of my career, what I've tried to do is find things that I felt as if would equip me to get into rooms where I wanted to be. And even rooms that I did not know that I wanted to be or that I should be in. And the way that I gained access is to seek out those things that were excluding me from those spaces. That was Brian Richardson, the inaugural DEI director for the Indianapolis Colts, discussing his journey to his new role, doing the work, and the importance of having a DEI focus on the culture of any organization. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Brian, welcome to the Freedom Forum. It's so nice to see you again after your recent recognition at the Indiana Minority Business Journal's Champion of Diversity event. Congratulations to you. Thank you. As I looked at your background, I thought about Dr. Leon Jackson, who was just recently on um, one of our episodes, because he, too, has a collection of academic degrees. You've got a a bit of a collection there. I think you and him are right there together. (laughs) Um, But before we get started, learn a bit more about your career journey. I'd like to know, please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and then any other personal factors that have led you through this focus of a career on sports and fitness, then being in academia and now as a DEI advocate and director? I'm originally from Saginaw, Michigan, uh, born and raised, um, single parent household, me and my mom, my older sister. All right. So that foundation was building on. I want you to be better. I want you to have a uh, phenomenal future. And, you know, where you go from here, is up to you. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, so that yeah. was the, the the roots that my mom really instilled on me. And she was very adamant around putting me in front of and around great male leaders. So I had something to look up to. Um, had strong members in the community, in my family, who pushed me to be better than what our circumstances were, or even what I thought I could be. And I think that that's an undertone of um, my entire life and my career, actually. So I would go on to um, leave the state of Michigan, Going and play college football down in Missouri, a small division two school called Culver Stockton College, where I majored in sports management, minored in business, heavily involved in student activities and um, student organizations, community service. So the spirit of giving back and being of service to other people. Sure. Uh, would go on from there. Uh, had an opportunity to go to the Senior Bowl my senior year, talk with some Canadian League scouts, and I thought, wow, I could chase the dream of being a pro athlete. But then I was also blessed to have two cousins who who took that route, mm-hmm. right? Who were also built a little bigger than me. I know I sound big, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they were they, they were built for that, right? And, and my football career took me as far as it was supposed to. Right, right, right. right. So I, I passed on uh, chasing the dream and then actually chose going to graduate school instead, pursuing my master's in kinesiology with an emphasis on sport and exercise behavior and a concentration on sports psychology. So my thought was I could still be around the game somehow. Right have a graduate assistantship in campus recreation and club sports and in murals at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And then life would get real. What would I do after this? Right. Right. And this is where I talk with a lot of students of as they're preparing for life after college and where do you go? Can you cast a wide net with a general direction where you want to go? So I applied for over a hundred different jobs uh, across the country, um, everywhere and in between. And We'll receive some some opportunities to interview with some pretty prestigious universities um, to continue to give me hope of you're going the right way. Right. Didn't really know what I wanted to do with the degree or where it would take me, but was open to utilizing my skill set. So that would land me then working in residence life as a hall director in the state of Ohio. So that's where I started my journey as an area coordinator um, at Wittenberg University and then would also be asked to do diversity and inclusion work. So I become their multicultural affairs coordinator. It was there in that space where I feel like my purpose found me because originally I had no interest in working in diversity, equity and inclusion. As I was thinking strategically, even at that early age and even early in my career, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the black guy who could only do diversity. Work, right, 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 right. I've heard so that a lot. Yeah. Tried to be very intentional of my involvements in, in, um, in opportunities that I pursued to show the flexibility and the range as a professional. And it, like I said, it's it's one of those situations where the purpose kind of found me because as I was trying to run away from that, it'd be in that space where I would find the most ability to be effective at the work. 
Um, I work with the uh, members of the organ or institution to create minority male initiatives that would then also create influence to create sister organizations and, and minor, uh, minority women focused initiatives that would then increase representation and retention rates for student color at the university and then serve in the capacity of advisor and mentor for a lot of student organizations that were focused on underrepresented or minoritized groups on campus. And I said, you know what, this, I like this. This is an area where I feel fulfilled, right? And I believe wholeheartedly in um, you spend your time in areas where you feel like you're, you're purpose driven right? Um, and you see the overall impact of the work that you can do. So from there, transitioned out of that uh, position and started working at uh, Indiana University. So this is 2016. Now we moved to uh, Bloomington. Uh, I serve as the inaugural director or inaugural assistant director for the School of Public Health in um, the Office of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. Um, and have an intentional supervisor, someone who invested in me, not only as a professional, but as a person, um, helped us find community. When I say us, me and my wife, when we moved to Bloomington, he threw a welcome to Bloomington party for us. Oh, Black faculty and staff opened up their doors and, and welcomed us in and we found community. That right. doesn't happen, you know, often for people who, who kind of are, are the transplants. Right. So I worked with him. We traveled the country doing um, cultural intelligence trainings for doctors, nurses, healthcare practitioners, looking at this work and the disparities within minoritized groups from a public health perspective. And really laying the foundation of while you were doing some stuff in the multicultural space, here's how you do it over here. Right. And really focusing on that full time. Then I would have the opportunity to go across the street to uh, the School for Public and Environmental Affairs, the O'Neill School, and become the inaugural director for DEI. Right. So now I have a chance to kind of establish an office from scratch, create some strategic approaches and a strategic plan, um, work with faculty members to diversify the curriculum where 50 percent of what's taught in the classroom now come from diverse perspectives, identities, representation. The people who you bring into your classroom will look like the students, the slides, the material, the content, the, the theorists that you're quoting will all look like the audience. And as part of the students being able to see themselves and what's being taught and then being able to go out and be those change makers. Right. So then. Have an opportunity to not only serve the Bloomington campus, but serve in a short stint the IUPUI campus. And then 2020 happened. All right. The world changed for everybody. And a colleague of mine found this posting and she comes to me and says, well, Brian, a student of mine came to me with a job opportunity, but I think it's more in alignment with your skill set. And at the time, I was teaching a, a master's course at the O'Neill School on Managing Workplace Diversity. I'm now over two different campuses. I'm a mentor in an academy for young boys of color in fourth through sixth grade in Bloomington. Um, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I've got all these different hats. But she wouldn't have said to, to, to come without an opportunity uh, or she wouldn't have came with that opportunity if it wasn't something I should seek. Right. right? So I said, well, who is it with? She said, it's with the Indianapolis Colts. So I said, I got five minutes. I'm putting in the application today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And it was one of those situations where I had to shoot my shot. Yeah. I had nothing to lose. I was in a good place. I wasn't looking for jobs. And it's almost one of those situations where opportunity meets preparation. I've been grinding my entire life, right? Doing this work, creating different initiatives, focused on creating that sense of belonging, finding ways to articulate what this work is to groups and populations that feel alienated from this work. They don't really understand, well, why are we focusing on this group if it doesn't impact me, right. right? If we can focus on the most marginalized or disenfranchised group in whatever context that looks like, here's how everybody benefits. That's right. Right. Yeah. So being able to show um, show the benefit of this work, to meet people where they are, to bring them along on this journey, because I think it's a collective journey. And we oftentimes can leave people behind because they're not where we are. And the way I look at the work is it operates on a continuum. There are people who get it and there are people who completely disengage and everything in between. And when I think of what this work is, I think we all fluctuate on that continuum based on our, our understanding or connection to or appreciation of the specific aspects or elements of diversity. But then when it twists and it shifts away from an area where we are not as knowledgeable of, then now do we find ourselves being hesitant to speak up or to support? Right. So I think that we have to grant some grace. And I found ways to you know, articulate that in the work that I do, shot my shot for this position. And as they say, the rest is history now. That's a heck of a journey. And that is, 
I thought I had some twists and turns in my career journey, but you've had some twists and turns. I mean, it is impressive to see how you've been able to, you know, flex DEI work in academia and sports into, well, more an academic setting. And then into, I mean, the public health sector. You talked about health. I mean, and I, I don't think I'd appreciate that. And then I guess all of that makes sense to go into the cults where, you know, all that comes together because, of course, it's sports and health and all of it. So so that's an interesting career journey. I, I want you to speak because I've had a couple people on, um, Dr. Leon Jackson, I mentioned previously, who've been in that academic arena. And I'd like you to tell us, because you're one of the few people I've had an opportunity to speak to that really have a long stint in that space where you can speak to what happens there as a career path mm-hmm. as compared to just being in academia, getting your degree and going on to whatever your career opportunities are. Tell us about some of the different things that you experienced in academia that I think often corporate employees, personnel, people in corporate settings may not necessarily appreciate as part of a academic career path for diverse professionals? And then how did you utilize your lessons learned in that space to kind of flex your career and move to where you are now? Yeah, I really think that I was fortunate to take the route that I that I did, yeah. right, to go from academia to the corporate space versus vice versa. I think that where conversations are in the academic space prepared me to be able to find different ways to connect Here's what the theory and the research looks like to here's how you apply it. And I think, you know, as I sit here now in my third position of a a newly created position and kind of leading from scale and scope, I think that I've shown now over the course of my 10 years of doing this work, how do you shift from theory and research to actually start doing the work? Right. Right. So having an understanding and commanding of uh, theoretical frameworks and best practices but then also being able to say, well, here's how I did it. And here's how this looks different in different environments. And here's what uh, certain industries or organizations are doing. And here's how we can take pieces of all right. of that right. to make it fit what our culture is here or where we are as an organization. So I think being able to to navigate a space like that um, is something that I, I pulled from my experience in the higher ed space. And as far as the, the adjusting and, and the cultural piece of it, I think that the conversations that I have in the corporate space now are largely guided by my experiences in the higher ed space. Sure. As we talk about recruiting and retaining individuals, I look at what do we do in the higher ed space? I look at the conversations that were had, right? So um, where the students were, things that were normalized to them and then working in the corporate space and say, hey, have we considered this? And a lot of those conversations not being broached yet. So now the conversation shifts from what are we selling as a, a corporation or, or entity to these incoming employees or potential perspectives to now, how can we get ready for the shifting demographic that's coming into the workplace? Yeah. Because as we've seen right now, we have five different generations working in the workplace, right? That means you have five different eyes and ideas looking at this particular thing, all with different approaches. Right, right. And I think that can be a true value and, and, and a strength if an organization or institution can really tap into that. Now with that, you also have to be willing to uh, adjust with the nuances. So where we are as a society, as a culture, as people, the mindset of the younger generation now entering into the workforce, how are we finding ways to adapt? Well, here's what we've done, but now articulate as to what's the why and the philosophy behind that. Um, the other thing we have to consider too now is one of the best indicators for future action is what have you done in the past, right? So organizations that are new to the DEI space, as you're trying to attract different communities or populations or identities, are you doing the due diligence of not only seeking those populations out, but preparing the space to receive them when they come? Right. right? And make it's, sure they're successful. Exactly. You right, have to right. set them up for success. Right. And you also have to have this, this culture that sees the shifting demographic that's entering into the workforce as a true benefit versus a check of the box. Right. Because now that, that sends the echo to your current employees well, this individual is only here because they fit these different boxes and this is a goal for the organization now versus we've done our homework to internally prepare our people to say, when we bring in folks, you better believe that they're the best, right? And here's how it's going to enhance what we do. And when they come, will they stay? 
Because you can go out and you can just bring in a bunch of people who look different or identify differently, but will they stay? And I think that speaks to the culture. So to, to answer your question, I think that being able to work with so many different groups and populations over the course of my career in the higher ed space and understand you know, the theory and the research and the scholarship behind how do you attract, how do you retain quality students, faculty, staff? I think there was a lot of overlap with my approach of how we move forward now. I appreciate that, that you you touched on a lot of good points there. And I want to ask you about your diversity training, because, you know, I consider myself a diversity leader and advocate. You know, I've, I've received numerous awards like you have, but I have no training or certification in the DEI field. In fact, when we started this podcast, I explicitly told IBJ, like, okay, you all understand, I'm not certified, right? I'm not setting myself out to be a DEI expert. I'm simply leading by example and based on my experiential learnings, right, of being a black woman in corporate America, you know, expressing those experiences. But I appreciate that you actually are certified, right? You actually have had these DEI trainings. And and I want to know, when did you decide that you wanted to invest in actual certification and training in this DEI space and that that was actually a viable career path? Because I appreciate your point. I think a lot of us as diverse professionals often are resistant to going in DEI space because we don't want to be pigeonholed as the diverse person where your expertise lies in what I'm saying, your experiential learning versus some kind of more solid technical training or certification. And so I I just want to get your perspective on how did your certification and training in this space and this work better prepare you for the work you're doing now as compared to somebody like me who's just kind of rolling off lifelong experiences, knowing what I know from the vantage point of, you know, the seat I sit in. And how do you think that better prepares you for for what you're doing now? Well, I think for me, it started on a personal journey, right? So I think it's it's easy for us to say that I feel compelled that I can do this work because of lived experiences, right? And I can draw on my own personal, you know, as a Black man in America and navigating the space. But I also think that there's value in finding the areas that I needed to unlearn and challenge myself. You know, so early on in my career, when I started off looking at the work that I was doing as that hall director, and seeing the position that um, that I was in to have an impact on an entire campus. There were a lot of things that I had to unlearn to be able to be truly effective in that role. All right. So you're talking about the socialization and the conditioning from the time your child to make sense of your scope and perspective on the world. So when we see these things, oh, we associate these things with certain people or certain groups of people. I had to unlearn a lot. And to do the self-work before I can put myself in a position where I can truly feel confident in advocating on others. So I had to unlearn the stuff. I had to go to spaces that were not first nature for me, right? So areas where I felt as if I was uncomfortable, I had to sit in that and really do that soul searching and in that work of, well, why are you uncomfortable, right? And I think that I benefit now from earlier, Brian early on in, in the career, Brian, where um, we had we, we had to process that. And I think through the work that I do, it draws from that of I'm able to be empathetic because I was also there and we are all still there. We are all still on this journey for enlightenment and inclusivity. And we all have areas where we're less knowledgeable of. This question for me is kind of multifaceted where I can look at it in perspective of my identity as a black man, but then I also look at it some of those other intersections of, in a lot of the positions that I've held, I've been the youngest person in the room, right? So how do I receive the validation to be in those spaces? And in the academic space, a lot of it was, well, what are your credentials? So in regards to the DEI space, I could solely lean on my my experiences, my personal experiences, but that will only get me so far. And I saw that as I was navigating the career. So what were the other things that I did not have? And if you kind of follow the the journey of my career, what I've tried to do is find things that I felt as if would equip me to get into rooms where I wanted to be. 
and even rooms that I did not know that I wanted to be or that I should be in. And the way that I gained access is to seek out those things that were excluding me from those spaces. So that led me to getting the master's degree, right? That started me on my my pursuit to uh, receive my doctoral degree. I remember early I was putting together a, a proposal for a conference, a couple of colleagues of mine, and then we had some doctoral students. And there was a comment that was made like, yeah, you know, me and Brian are here, but we brought you doctoral students here to be the experts in the field. And I was like, wow, I've been doing this work for, you know, five to seven years. But I'm not considered But I'm expert. not considered an expert. Right, right, right. And it wasn't said with any ill will or a slight. Yeah. But I know how that made me feel. And that was that spark to say, well, I don't want anybody to say that there's something that I don't have. Right. So how can I obtain the things that will stamp me, quote unquote, right? Um, but then also add to my skill set, right. add to my repertoire. So that led me to, you know, getting the different certifications in the DEI. Let me hone in and continue to see here's this buffet of information that's out there. Now, how can I take that in, add it, tweak it to fit? Here's what, what my approach looks like to look at some of the work that's out there through a critical lens of, ah, I probably wouldn't have said it like that. Right. Right. Or maybe this will flow and, and connect differently if you apply it to this group or say it this way or, or this notion. But then one of the other things is, you know, as I made that transition, a lot of people ask, well, how are you going to jump from higher ed to then working in corporate? Like, what's what's the transition? And I said, well, again, if you apply that same approach, I'm going to go to the sources. If there's something I don't know, one thing that I am good at is saying, hey, I don't know it, right. but I know where to go to find it. Right. So went and, um, and pursued a, a uh, certification in organizational leadership from Harvard to get a real understanding of what this business world is, right? I've been doing it. I've stood up offices before, but now to continue to get those stamps of validation, right? To get that fundamental and, and, and that backing from from theory and research and the scholars and, and to see, well, here's how I've been able to app, uh, to apply what I've learned. Now, how do I replicate that to fit it over here in this corporate space? Got that information. I have to understand what well, worked well over in the higher ed space may not translate over here. We want it quick and easy, right? right? But now being able to take that same mindset, skill, and drive to adapt to this new environment. And then that's also why I decided to pursue my uh, doctorate in business administration. So, Yeah, I, I really like what you said about, you know, going beyond your lived experience to recognize your own biases in order to be one thing I heard what you said effective, but I thought objective, right? Mm. To get beyond your own Absolutely. implicit and uh, biases to recognize what your own issues are, especially when you're in a position of, of power and privilege, like you mentioned, where your decisions actually affect people yeah. and they affect p potentially the student success at the institution. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's very powerful because, you know, so many I, I just heard today, like these trainings don't work. But I do think if you take them seriously, one you know, two hour training can't solve the whole world, but they can identify some areas that we each individually can take upon ourselves to work on for ourselves, um, like implicit biases and just recognizing, oh, wow, I'm a little uncomfortable in this room or on this side of town or in this particular neighborhood. And why is that? And what do I, where does that come from? Right? Because if I'm feeling that now, I may be feeling that in my corporate environment where it's the same people sitting at the lunch table or whatever, at the boardroom or whatever the case may be. Absolutely. And, and, I, I, and I love that you say that too, because I think that it's about provoking thought. Right. That when I look at this work, it's not about shaming and blaming. It's not about taking from one particular group and giving to another. It's realizing that there are experiences that may be unbeknown to me. Right. But I cannot discredit those experiences because they are not my own. Right. So now how can I position myself to hear a different perspective or see it as an opportunity to broaden my own and get us back towards the space of even civil discourse that you have a lived experience that is different than mine? Who am I to say that your truth is different, uh, is, is more or less acceptable than my own? It may just expand. Oh, well, I never thought about that. Right. Or I've never heard that. Or I've never seen people who are impacted by these things to be able to show me that that is a possibility. Yeah. But now that you are in front of me, then now, again, it shifts from theoretical framework to best practices or, or abstract thought. to now we have an opportunity to humanize the word because I see a person in front of me. Yeah, that's right. And I can empathize or at least 
see myself in those situations. I also appreciate that you mentioned, you know, the discomfort. So much of what I hear right now happening, you know, in in so many academic settings, particularly as I listen to the news about what's happening in Florida with regard to, you know, African-American AP studies, it's trying to get rid of discomfort. People don't want to feel uncomfortable. And I've talked to many folks about how necessary is discomfort and being uncomfortable, getting comfortable being uncomfortable in the space of DE&I, really making progress and change in that space. And what I hear you saying and what I've seemed to learn is that that's part of it. If you're not getting yourself in a position to be uncomfortable, you're probably not pushing hard enough right on some of the changes that are necessary in any particular organization. If everybody's just like, oh yeah, let's do that. That's easy. Then you're probably not going far enough for the folks who need it the most. Right. So I appreciate you talk about discomfort and allowing your own yourself to be uncomfortable, but also how necessary that is in this space and making progress in this space. So you went on serving as DEI director in these various departments to now, as we've talked about, the inaugural DEI director for the Indianapolis Colts. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on for this particular episode, because as far as I'm concerned, that is real black history, like for not only the Colts to get to a point where they determined that they need a DEI director, but for that to be used. So I, I must believe for a lot of folks that was winning the Super Bowl in and of itself. But you, you've already mentioned to us kind of how you learned about that position. But I, I'd like you to tell us, and, and you've kind of talked about this, we've just talked about it. What are some of the characteristics and skills and experiences that you believe you specifically possess that kind of got you ready for this particular position, and more importantly, that excites you about actually being able to have influence in the organization. And I ask that particularly because I talk to a lot of DNI directors who are like, yeah, I have the role or I have the title, but I don't necessarily feel empowered to make the changes that at least me and my team recognize need to be made or at least could be made, right, to, to make progress. So how are you feeling about being there as long as you have, how enabled and empowered you are to really make some changes and what do some of those changes look like? It's funny, I actually had this conversation with um, yeah, a couple of colleagues and you know, asked me, Brian, what is it like? You know, what is it like? And without thinking, you know, my first response has been, it's like a dream that I never dreamt, but something I've been working for my whole life. Right. As, as a kid, the passion and ambition to uh, make it to the league and, and go pro and, and be in the NFL or be associated with it. That was a dream of mine. Yeah. And then to um, have an opportunity to play college ball and, and a chance to chase that dream. But then, as I mentioned, where to be in a space where my passion kind of found me. I think that is one where I kind of put that put that dream to rest. Right. That I was being called to do something else. And looking at the world now or, or, or my role now in my position in the world, I see it as where two worlds kind of came together. Yeah. That kid who wanted to make it, but never saw it as a possibility that I could be doing my passion work and doing it. And in regards to my experience in the role, I think about how I viewed it before I even applied. I was in a good space. I was uh, youngest director over, over two different offices doing the work creating strategic plans, um, working with uh, the legal and, and, and the dean of the college, working with faculty members, creating opportunities for students, heavily involved in, in the city of Bloomington. I was happy. I was doing great things. And then when this opportunity presented itself, I had to be very intentional on, was this the right move? Because again, while this was a dream job, absolutely. I have always guarded myself of not being a part of something that's just a check of the box. If I don't believe in it, I'm not going to put my name in. Absolutely. Right. Amen. So I did the research on the coastal organization. I loved what I saw right. Right? with the history, right? Uh, to be associated with an organization that, that, that gets it. Um, and even looking at the conception of this position in this role, right? It came by way of the organization listening to its people 
And then to see various um, leadership roles occupied by people of color and, and women um, in the organization, I said, that's that's great. Like, that's something that I want to be a part of. So then I go through the interview process and then I ask, you know, well, I'm happy where I am. But will we have an opportunity to do the work that needs to be done? Like, will 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 I have that support? And that was yes, resounding yes, everybody I talked to. And then to be in the role and feel that. Right. Right. To be invited into rooms where decisions are being made. You know, they always say it's important for us to have a seat at the table. Right. right. And if I look at my experience now, I think that that's only part of the story that they told us. Having a seat isn't good enough. Because we can have a seat at the table, and but then not have a voice. Not have a voice. Absolutely. Right. So are you are you able to speak right. at said table? Right. right. Are you able to then be credited for um, your contributions at the table? Right. Are you able to look around that table and see here are the other thoughts, experiences, ideas that aren't here, and then find ways to bring them into the room so they can then speak on behalf of themselves? Absolutely. Um, and I'm fortunate to be able to say that I've I've been able to do some of that work. Right. To be brought into rooms and say, hey, Brian, what are your thoughts on this? Right. Because I think this position came in the thought of, well, how can we continue to be proactive in this space um, versus being reactive as, as much as possible with everything that's going on? And I found favor. Um, I'm working for an organization who I believe gets it, who wants to do right, you know, has the best interests of, of, of people in mind. Um, and I feel that not only from the organization, but the RSA family, um, they're great people. Yeah. And, you know, as you talk about <laughs> what the experience has been like, you know, how long are we standing in the rows? I stay because of the people. And that distinctly stands out to me because within the first two weeks of my role, not only did I try to connect with people outside of the building, but I wanted to connect with people inside the building. And I asked them, you know, what are, What's the reason that you stayed as long as you have? I'm trying to get an understanding of the culture. Right. Right. And over the course of uh, two and a half weeks, I talked to you know upwards of 100, 150, 175 people all via Zoom. And the common theme was I stayed because of the people. I don't know about you, but I haven't worked in many organizations where everybody you talk to, they're going to say they stand for the people. Right. And I believe that now. Right. That it's, it's a culture that's built where... We're, we're growing to to make sure that people feel supported, feel included. Now, are we perfect? There's always room to grow. Right. Right. And I think that that's a part of the work that I've been tasked to do in this role of we found something that works. We got a good culture. How can it be better? How can we continue to improve? How do we avoid stagnation or, or becoming complacent? So we're doing the work. The Freedom Forum would like to acknowledge our African-American and Black communities of the U.S. during this 2023 Black History Month. Now, let's take a quick break. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I, I recognize that beyond the Colts, and certainly I want to keep them in our purview, but I want to kind of broaden the conversation to the NFL generally. But I appreciate what you said previously about this role kind of being the the compilation, the culmination of both worlds, right? The DE&I stuff and your desire to be associated or close to the game, the NFL. That's what I felt about my role now at, between science and law. Like there's this beautiful little intersection as a patent attorney that kind of brings those worlds together. And it does feel like a gift when you find that role that kind of brings all those passions together and you can serve your full purpose and your full value in that role. So I appreciate what you mean by that. And I'm thankful that you've had the opportunity to experience that because I don't think everyone does find that kind of ideal role where all the things they've been working for and all the things they dreamt about, or in my case, and it sounds like your case too, the things you didn't even know were out there that were opportunities kind of come to fruition for you. I want to ask you about, you know, your role specifically as DNI director. You know, you're saying, 
I looked up the Colts. They had a great culture. Everybody loves everybody. Everything's wonderful. So if that's the case, my question to you is, why did the Colts even feel like there was a need for this role, right? And if everything is so wonderful, I mean, particularly as I look at the NFL, it is very diverse, right? The players are very diverse, but I also recognize, and you know, although I'm not a football expert, I do recognize that there's been plenty of media attention recently and historically about the need for there to be more representation in the ownership and the coaching staff, right? Um, and now we're hearing even the historical context of this current Super Bowl where you've got for the first time ever two black quarterbacks. So while there's clearly seems to be diverse representation, which is so often where so many companies are starting, right? We just need representation. We don't even have that. Seems like that's reasonable, at least in some levels of the NFL, while still being needed at different levels. What is some of your goals? What are the Colts seeking? And then what do you think may just be the trends generally for the NFL with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion at higher ranks? of the NFL, particularly at the coaching staff level, at the ownership level, and even with regard to the higher profile and higher prestige positions like quarterback at the player level. When we think of why did, uh, you know, if everything's great, why would we create this position? And I think it came from forward thinking of what's it's working now. We're in a good place now. But the world is evolving. It's constantly shifting. There are things that we don't know as an organization. There are, to your point, um, areas where we still need to traverse more opportunities to create representation, right? And what happens after the point of representation? Also, we've had the first. Right, right. And right. I had a great conversation with a mentor of mine a couple months back, and he was just kind of going over the course of my career. And even his, a lot of parallels of, oh, you, you know, you've been the first in a lot of different places. And at some point, we had to get to the point where we're not just celebrating being the first, but now laying a, a blueprint so I'm not the last. That's right. All right. So I think that the creation of this role is is it isn't similar or isn't dissimilar to a lot of other companies and corporations who saw the value in creating these roles. All right. That there's a need to be equity minded. You know, earlier you asked, you know, about a, about a skill set and seeking the different certifications. And I think that the goal is not to just make it to a diversity position, but to do this work with the equity mindset. Mm -hmm. So now we talk about that skill set that regardless of the position that we hold, the work will be viewed from an equitable lens. So then how do you embed that throughout an organization, through the strategic process and planning of an organization where now this work is not just on the shoulders of the person who has diversity in their title or the diversity committee or the task force or the, uh, the consultant. But now here's what this work looks like across the entire organization that we embedded in the work, that we do some internal assessments and some audits of different departments, look at the way in which we're recruiting um, individuals. Where are we going? Right. We looked at uh, what are our efforts look like to retain the ones that we do have right from from marginalized identities. And then continue to point out the things that we don't know, point out those gaps to position us where we are not complacent. Oh, well, we were happy. We, we, had, we had the first right. fill in the blank with this. Right. Well, that's that's great to be the first. But then let's make that now a standard. Right. This that this is who we are. This is what we stand for. So I think that the creation of this position was now it speaks to a history that they've had of this is who we are. This is what we do. And here's why we do it. And then. I see my opportunity um, to kind of carve in a part of that legacy of, well, here's some of the, the philosophy behind that now. And here's how we make that work sustainable. So you've now gotten into the role. You've been there, what, a, almost two years now or maybe not quite, but you've had the opportunity to kind of dig in a bit. So what are some of the initiatives or the programs that you've either created or influenced that you believe can count as a win in your bucket at this point? And what areas do you think as you're looking futuristic and forecasting, you know, future opportunities are areas where you think more strategic planning or investment are needed? So when I came in, my mindset was create 
um, kind of some pillars for the work as we talk about that philosophy and, and, and strategic approach. Um, and I came up with four core functional areas for the office. The first being ongoing education opportunities for our employees. So internal focus on the continued development. So we talk about professional development, but also development in the DEI space. And to break that box down, I believe in activating an active and passive program. So passive programming will provide multiple entry points into what this work is and how you can grasp uh, grasp some of the concepts um, to meet people where they are. So I offer a newsletter that goes through uh, the different heritage months from January to uh, January to December. Right. That here's historical context. Here's why it's important to honor, recognize and celebrate these different demographics and heritages. Here's the organization or entity that made this a policy or law or to be recognized from the federal level, right, to now bringing it from this 50,000 feet view to right here in the city of Indianapolis. Here are local organizations that cater to these demographics all year round, not just during the heritage months. Here are opportunities for you to engage and learn more, attend events, bring your family, invest, support these organizations, highlighting that. And then also looking at that spin there too, that here are all the diverse businesses from these different demographics so now we talk about influence, the, the economics within these communities as well, providing that all through our newsletters and then opportunities to continue to learn and engage. So here's some relevant podcasts some TED Talks, right? Because there's those who learn by seeing, those who learn by doing, those who need the empirical research and the data to prove, well, here's why you should care, providing all of that in a passive approach that you always have this as this repository to come back to. The active piece is how do we build out now? A series of discussions. So the first thing that we launched was a five-part certification series that says now you've invested your time throughout the season to complete this process. And now that goes into your employee file at the end of the year to show your commitment to DEI. So to receive said certification, you have to attend all five sessions. And we had a good number of our employees who found the time to do that during the season, right? Then we've also hosted a series of uh, webinars and panel conversations that dive deeper into some of the subject matter that we discussed from the newsletter. So now taking it from the theoretical space to now humanize it, because now you're going to hear the perspective of um, local researchers and, and scholars from local colleges and universities to different grassroots leaders to even people within our organization to share these identities and the passion for this work. That was the active and passive piece. The second pillar is uh, community engagement, community relations. I view myself um, ultimately as an outsider who gained access to this highly exclusive space that is sports. So what I know to be true is there's people in the community, organizations in this community who've been doing this work for years, who don't need us. How do I find ways to come alongside them and support their causes? So to make myself accessible, right, to pull up. Yeah, right? yeah, to yeah. pull up and support, yeah. to be among them, um, to celebrate them, um, to acknowledge their effort, their efforts, uh, I believe wholeheartedly in being community focused. The next area is recruitment and retention. So when it comes to recruitment, you can't just cast this note and stand on the brand, right? You're going to bring in a lot of people by doing that. But then to your point of that representation, can we have a serious conversation as an organization say, hey, we are lacking in these areas. What are we going to do to be intentional, to create pipelines, create opportunities to do the work? Because it's not going to instantaneously happen. You have to continue to curate relationships. So we're doing that, going into the spaces, being accessible, but then also finding ways to take this two-pronged approach when it comes to recruitment of not only going out and seeking the talent, but also preparing the space, as I mentioned earlier. Having these continued conversations of, Here's what it looks like to welcome and receive everybody. Here's the value of having multiple identities, experiences, um, the importance of representation. Here's the benefit of the work that we're doing. So when they come, they are received in a space that has been curated to welcome them. And then the retention piece, you know, we talk a lot about bringing your full authentic self to work. Well, what does that mean? What does that entail? Our company is actually ready for a person to bring their full authentic self to work because now we have to consider psychological safety. Is it safe for me to be fully me here? Or do I have to shut off certain parts of my identity? Or what happens when things in the world happen and they impact me at who I am as a core because part of my identity is now under attack? Do I now have to shut that off at the door to come into work? 
or do I come into work and these experiences have not been seen, acknowledged at all? Does that really make me feel like I can bring my full authentic self to work? Because right now it's hard to be at work, right? And what we've done is found ways to kind of bring the organization together, press a pause on the workday and do that check-in. How are you doing? So we've held space like that to have a conversation where the employees can utilize the space how they see fit. So one of the ones we had, it was some individuals came to vent to share what they were carrying. Some people came to sit in silence, but to feel seen. Some people came to learn what's going on. And then others came to ask questions of how do I show up? How can I support? And I think it's important to create space like that to help process and to make it voluntary. Because not every person will need that space. But if and when you do, here's the space. In addition to all the other resources that we have internally to support your mental health, uh, to support your uh, physical health, your well-being. And then here's also because we've developed and strengthened partnerships. Here's what support looks like outside of this building, too. That's really powerful. To your point, it's voluntary, right? You don't have to come, but it's available if you want to come. Another thing you mentioned was your internal resources for academic support for your employees. And I know I spoke to Pete Yonkman a while ago about that. He had really built a whole program about really investing in his employees and allowing them to pursue whatever academic uh, goals they had set and how important it was for for them, not only as a company, but as a community, because they that was truly a mechanism to reinvest, not just in their own corporation and for their benefit, but for the community. Because he recognized that as you allow a mother to go back and get her degree, she is in much better position for her kids, right, who are much better. And that just continues to proliferate through the family and it just and the community, right? Everybody gets better. You mentioned a similar program like that, but I'm wondering, are there other programs or initiatives that the cult specifically are focused on to support local communities, local members of communities with regard to and particularly underserved, you know, representatives, underserved populations in our community, whether that's local or central Indiana, just specifically to make sure that the cults are reinvesting some of their resources into the local community and making sure that they leave it better than they found it. Yeah. So it's, it's funny you bring that up. You know, as we talk about some of the initiatives that we created, and it's kind of a, a two-pronged answer. One of our more recent programs that we hosted um, was the Breaking Barriers Career Combine. And this was an opportunity to now uh, eliminate barriers of access. So when we're uh, was thinking about the creation of the pipeline, you, we got talent here in the city of Indianapolis. Uh, we have talent across the state of Indiana. We just have to do our due diligence and go out and find them. So through the Breaking Barriers Combine, what I wanted to do was partner with our community relations team who does a phenomenal job, right? As you talk about um, how are we investing in, in corporate responsibility, they do a great job with, with giving back. So we're partnering with um, various schools and IPS to looking at some of the work that we're trying to do with some of the uh, local colleges and universities. There's a lot of work that's going on. And then you just a charitable giving of, of Mr. Ursay and the family, the things that you hear and things that you don't hear, right? Like um, they're invested in the city, invested in the state. And through that uh, Breaking Barrier Career Combine, one of the things we wanted to do was provide three different discussions. So panel discussions. The first one was specifically about what you just said. What's the corporate responsibility, right, of, of giving back and impacting the community? And in our first panel, it featured our director for community relations, who's also over um, the Coles Foundation. And she talked about corporate responsibility. So the, these organizations, so she spoke on that perspective. Um, but then we also had um, two current players to speak about utilizing your platform to create change, right? The second conversation was, all right, I want to work in sports. How do I get there? What's the path like? And we had a panel conversation featuring current interns, new professionals to the organization, to the industry to talk about how'd you get there? And the voices and identities came from marginalized groups, right? So now I can see myself in this experience and realize there's no one path. And then the last conversation was in in regards to building a team. And this featured um, VPs and hiring managers. So now you got a room full of prospective employees, interestees, and you can hear directly from 
those uh, in positions to hire. Here's what I'm looking for when I'm building my team. When you're creating your cover letter and your resume, here are things that should be in there. Um, here's what the interview process looks like. Here's when these jobs will be posted. Here's where you go to find them. Here's how you stand out in the pool of 4,000 plus people, right? So I think it's being intentional to create those avenues. We were able to get members in the room by partnering with local colleges and universities and other young professional organizations that focused on minoritized groups. Yeah. Very intentional in how we went around that, that first year, and we'll look to continue to do that. But I think it takes intentionality, right? You have to see what that need is. You have to be willing to not only show up and invest, but then also put in that time. That's what equity. And I'm, I'm proud of the work that the organization has done so far. We also have uh, the Players Action Fund, and that's when the players find a cause that they get behind. Right, give back to the community that they serve. They are volunteering in in the schools. Uh, I went along with uh, a couple of members of the, of the team and um, and the uh, community relations team, and went into the, the juvenile detention center. Right, giving back, inspiring. Right, your time is one of the most valuable things that you have to offer a person. Right, I always say you can tell a person's priorities based on how they spend their time, and. We do a good deal of providing opportunities to get in the community, to do the work. But again, I think there's always more that we can do. And we're continuing to look at that. And I'm excited to be a part of that conversation, what that looks like, of where else can we go? Who else can we continue to partner with and meet new folks as I continue to get acclimated in the city? That's really inspiring. I want to switch gears a little bit because you mentioned a bit ago in one of your answers that one of the resources that you provide some of your folks are TED Talks, you know, podcasts, resources, et cetera. And I know you're a TEDx speaker, provided some talks nationally and internationally related to DEI. So I wanted to ask you this question um, because I've heard this conversation recently. I thought you were the perfect person, specifically as it is related to DEI speakers and diverse DEI speakers. I've heard from a, a couple folks that they often get press when they're in negotiation about their prices and fees for whatever they're going to be speaking about, whatever topic of interest, that they often get asked in a way that often non-diverse DNI speakers do not, whether they would require their full asking price as compared to doing the talk or giving a part of it as pro bono in order to help the diverse employees or members of the organization or whoever it is you're speaking to. And I've seen a couple of posts on LinkedIn where um, DNI speakers are kind of fussing about this and saying, why would you ask me? You know, you're not asking these other speakers that are coming in. And so it it was kind of pressing on me. And so as I thought about you coming in, I thought, well, he's a perfect person to ask because he's done this work, right? You've given these presumably paid gigs for speaking about DEI topics. So my question is, have you encountered this situation? If you did, how did you handle it? And if not, how would you recommend a, a DEI speaker or a facilitator who is being requested by whatever organization to discount or reduce their fees for their content as compared to other content that we both know organizations particularly corporate organizations pay good money to have speakers come in all the time. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, let me start by saying, I think that um, your labor should always be compensated. Okay. Right. And I think that if you look at the burnout rate associated with DEI practitioners, mm. it's real. Right. So that additional labor and that taxation that comes with the work should be compensated. You know, when I look at it, I don't want the price tag to be a reason why an organization doesn't get the work that they need, right? Now, while I say that, I also know that as you do this work, we can tend to have a spirit to lowball ourselves. Go for what you're worth. That would be my advice there. And if they aren't in the position to afford your services, then that speaks volume to your service that you can provide. Because while one company or organization says no, for bringing you in for that consulting or whatever the case may be, another may say yes. So know your value, know your worth. 
And as my my cousin would say, get your coins. Right, get your right. Coins, right, right, absolutely. So, given that you are the spokesperson for DE and I at the Indianapolis Colts football team, what are two or three tips that you would offer or resources? We mentioned TEDx talks or such. Any leadership of a winning corporate team. You talked a lot about equity um, and having an equitable mindset, having an equity mindset. And I, I really appreciate that because, again, I still think there is some misperception about the differences between diversity and equity, right? And inclusion, right? You can have a completely diverse team where nobody feels like they belong and nobody feels like they actually are included. And, you know, but you got all kind of different people. What would you offer to leaders, again, as recommendations or resources who are serious? And I always say that because I think there are plenty of leaders out there who are uh, have the task to diversify their team, but it's not anything they're necessarily passionate about. They're not skilled. They don't know how to do that. And then there are people who I talk to plenty of leaders who fully recognize we're not nearly as diverse as we should be. I'm working hard to get there, but I'm I'm experiencing real barriers or real obstacles. And it's not because I'm not trying, Angela. And it's not because, you know, I'm not looking for diverse um, candidate pools. You know, like I think a lot of people have recognized that, okay, we at least need to have, if we're trying to be real and serious about this, diverse candidate pools for whatever positions that are available. But I do get real, and Jimmy and I talked about it, it is sometimes legitimately hard to get a equitable, diverse candidate pool that does represent your audience or your customer base or your clientele or whatever. So what resources or, or recommendations would you have for folks who are in that position, who are serious and sincere about diversifying or um, having a more inclusive culture, but just don't quite know how to do it or overcome some of those barriers that they're experiencing in Indianapolis or central Indiana, which even geographically sometimes presents a barrier. Yeah, so there's three things that come to mind. Um, the first being, what's the why? Right, we send in the work around the why. And if the why isn't of the authentic nature, right. that's going to show in how you carry out that. So why, why are we doing this work? Why are you deciding to make this a, a pillar, a value, a mission of your organization? What's the why? The second being, what self-work has been done. So if we're talking specifically to the leaders, how can you be able to give your own testimony? Here are the things that I didn't know. Here are things that I learned. Here's how I found value in this resource that our uh, DEI, in-house DEI person um, has created. And here's how I'm backing them or giving them the stamp or strongly encouraging folks to also participate in this. How can we integrate the works, um, the resources, the tangible tools that this particular person or group of people is um, offering to our organization. So now what's the backing look like? Right. Because one thing that you know can shift the organization in the effectiveness of the people who are doing this work is proximity to the power. If I don't have it, who's going to back it? If right. I don't have the budget, how do we get the money to make sure we can do these things? So where is the support? Where does that lie? Where does it end? Right. And then how much more can be done? So we look at what, what what's the why? Why did we decide to do this, make it a value? We look at the self-work that's need to be done, um, the own internal questions and, and um, measure of accountability that we can take on ourselves. But then the third would be what's going to draw and entice people to come to your particular organization over other because DEI is hot right now, right? Everybody's focusing on the recruitment numbers. Why would a person choose to come to your organization versus another? So now we're looking at the culture that we have. We're looking at the spaces that we've created, the opportunities for continued development. We're looking at our compensation, right? How are we in comparison to other people who do the things that we do? And then how can we improve on, on what we do? What's the narrative that we're sharing to say, here's who we are and what we do and why we do what we do? Again, going back to what that why is. So do some internal conversations, some, some serious reflections in the mirror to say, here's where we are. And here's opportunities for us to improve. Yeah. Yeah, I I really, really appreciate that. And again, on this Black History Month, I, I really want to thank you for A, taking the time to come and speak with us, B, stepping up for the role, and C, you know, beginning 
to implement whatever vision that you have for the organization. Because certainly if you're in Indianapolis, you recognize that the Colts is a major organization in this city. And having a, a role that is dedicated to this, it does mean a lot to a lot of people. I can appreciate, you know, it, it at least sends a message that we're trying to be intentional and serious about the work. You keep talking about the work. And I've mentioned a few times that if any organization, corporate organization, really wants to be taken seriously at this point in 2023, you should at least have someone with the title that is DE&I focused, right? I think that's just kind of uh, uh, table stakes in, in this space we're talking about. All I can tell you is, again, thank you so much. Good luck to you in your role. If we can be here, if we can support, please let us know. But we wish you all the luck in your role and continued success in, in your career path. Thank you. And congratulations to you, champion of diversity. <laughs> yeah, I'm in good company, obviously. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brian, for being on this episode of the Freedom Forum. My pleasure. Thank you again to Brian Richardson, and thanks to you for joining us on this 19th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the central Indiana business community. 